Uh, I, I never cease to amaze my own self. <laughs> and I say that humbly. Actually, I don't say that. Don King once said that. I'm, I'm not that arrogant. But uh, Don King's a boxing promoter who, uh, who once endorsed a fight from Muhammad, by Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali once famously said this statement. It's coming. There it is. Ali said this, I'm not the greatest, I'm the double greatest. Not only do I knock him out, I pick the round. I'm the boldest, the prettiest, the most superior, most scientific, most skillfulest, he made that word up, fighter in the ring today. And, and he might have had a point. Like Ali might have been the greatest boxer of all time. So it makes sense that like when you're the greatest, you should be able to tell people about it. Greatness and pride, they, they go together, right? Like, like if, if you can beat the rest, if you're the absolute best, I feel like you should be able to say, that's what I am. But as we study the life of Jesus, the humble servant, the risen king, truly the greatest of all time, we learn that Jesus invites us into a life completely different from the two statements that I've read today. A life of humility. A life of, as one author put it, healthy self-forgetfulness. The last will be first. The humble will be exalted. Greatness personified through service. Well, hello to all of you guys on all of our campuses, for those watching online and reading in the prisons through CF Inside. It is so good to be with you today. Um, through the first two months of 2018, we've walked through the book of Mark, the first account of Jesus's life and teachings. And right around this point in Mark chapter 10, where we're gonna be studying today, we see Mark start to shift his focus a little bit. And so we're gonna do the same starting this weekend um, as we learn what it looks like to follow a humble servant and a risen king. And we're gonna dig right in today. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 with me. We're gonna start in verse 32, Mark Mark chapter 10, verse 32, get there on your Bibles or your Bible apps on your phones, and uh, here's what we read, starting in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 disciples aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now these words from Jesus are actually the third time that Jesus predicted his suffering and death to the disciples. It's the third time that he told them of the brutality that awaited him. The third time he described the pain ahead. But in this specific narrative, Jesus ups the description of the brutality of the cross that awaits him. Now we know from our history lessons that the Romans were renowned for their despicable capital punishment procedures. I mean, these guys were experts at torture, including mockery, spitting, and much, much worse. It was, it was really inhumane what they did to people. And Jesus teaches this here. He's, he's aware, he knows what awaits him when, when it comes time for his, his suffering and his death. And it's interesting that every time Jesus predicts his death and his suffering, his disciples start to do something. Um, every, every time in the, in the book of Mark, 
Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Mark chapter 9, verse 31, and then here in Mark chapter 10. Each time Jesus predicts his suffering and death, his disciples start to jockey for their position within the kingdom of God. Look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of, Ze- the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus said, okay, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. This is the most blatant example of self-centeredness and self-promotion that we see from the disciples. And And I think we can relate. I mean, as as human beings, we've seen this since the beginning of time, since the beginning of our story. The writer of Genesis states that it was through pride that the serpent tempted Adam and Eve and caused them to fall. Here's what we read in Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Our natural inclination is to elevate ourselves. It's what made Adam and Eve fall. You can be like God. You can achieve his status. You can be equal with him on the org chart. I think at our core, we, we desire this. It's, it's part of our, our humanity and our culture. Self-centeredness, self-promotion, self-preservation, autonomy, status, control, we want to be great. And these two brothers are just as human as you and I. Where do we stand, they infer. Now, this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark where James and John are mentioned apart from the other 12 or other 10 disciples and apart from from Peter. Um, You might remember from a couple weeks ago, James and John were with Peter and Jesus at the Transfiguration, and these two guys, along with Peter, are part of the inner three. They're part of Jesus's closest disciples. But Mark is making it very clear here that it is just the two brothers making this audacious request, which makes sense because Mark's source for this narrative is most likely Peter, the third member of the inner three. And when the two brothers ask to sit at the right and the left of Jesus in his glory, consequently excluding Peter from said glory, you know Peter had to have talked to Mark and been like, hey, Mark, write this down, check out what these punks did, do not miss this. I mean, this is, this is the, savior, the, the, the Savior, the Messiah, the King, and these two brothers, James and John, want to be elevated right alongside Jesus. They're asking for Jesus to sign a blank check here. And they're doing so in a very elitist and exclusionary manner. In Jewish custom, the place of highest honor was was at the center, followed by the right and the left hands, respectively. Uh, The Talmud actually instructs the teacher to walk in in the middle with his greatest disciple at the right and his second greatest disciple at the left. And when it comes to Jesus, up to this point, he's been very clear and consistent about the suffering that awaits him in Jerusalem. But, but his disciples struggle with something that a lot of the men in the room struggle with, at least according to our spouses, selective hearing. They, they look at Jesus' trip to Jerusalem as a march of, of majesty. He's going to inherit the messianic kingdom, and we want to be connected to that. We want to be part of that. We want to be right there with you. 
So in acknowledging and honoring Jesus as the Messiah, they're also hoping to honor themselves. For, for these two disciples, here's what we learn. Worship and discipleship are easily blended with self-interest, or maybe even worse, self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. This might still be a temptation for us today. Let's, let's read on. Um, verse 38, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? In the Old Testament, the cup usually symbolizes something allotted by God. It could mean joy and prosperity, but most of the time when we read about the cup in the Old Testament, this language indicates something that is not so joyful, namely God's judgment and wrath. And that, to- that holds true here as well. Jesus is speaking of his suffering and death on the cross, uh, a cup that only Jesus can drink. The cross is a cup of, of wrath that Jesus alone can drink in order to pay the cost of sin for all of humanity. So when Jesus asks these two disciples, can you drink the cup that I drink? The obvious answer is no. Verse 39, we can, they answered. Listen to the, listen to the patience of Jesus here. Jesus said, okay, you will drink the cup I, I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or to sit at my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus says, okay, yeah, you'll, you'll drink the cup. You will, you will suffer. You will make sacrifices. But he knows and we know that they can't drink the same cup that Jesus drinks. They, 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 they can't do what Jesus is about to do on behalf of who he is about to do it for. They can't save humanity. I mean, they can't even, they can't even save themselves. So the patience of Jesus is, is admirable here. It's like he's taking their self-promotion and reminding and renewing their call to discipleship, which inevitably involves suffering and sacrifice. He doesn't say, no, ah, you dummies, you can't do that. He doesn't say that. He, he just says, okay, yes, you'll suffer. Yes, yes you'll make sacrifices. But, but here's the deal. Don't continue to push yourselves forward because this is not what we're about. You see, disciples of Jesus do not choose to accept or reject suffering and adversity based on the rewards that we're waiting for. We accept suffering on the sole basis that it is the way of Jesus Christ. As Scottish minister George MacDonald once said, the Son of God suffered unto the death, not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. Now, just, just because Jesus has patience with these disciples doesn't mean that the other 10 disciples had the same amount of patience. Uh, verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus looked at this as a teaching opportunity, so he called them together and he said, here's how the world works. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Jesus says that this is how the world practices leadership from a model of dominance, power, position, and authority. Actually, in the Greek, authority over them is better translated like this, to gain mastery or power over others. 
this is actually, this is actually, to be completely honest with you and transparent today, this is actually a, something I've seen myself struggle with in my adult years. I mean, how many of you guys have ever taken the, the strengths finder test? It's a test to, to discover your like five greatest strengths and a lot of organizations use it in hiring practices and, and chemistry fits. And uh, it's a fascinating test. I took it about 10 years ago and, and my number two strength is competition. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at my strengths. Um, <laughs> uh, the... The interesting thing, the way that I describe this to people is that competition means that I will do whatever it takes to win in leadership and managing people and moving things forward and, and pick up basketball. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, I will do whatever it takes to win. And that can be a strength. Like, it helps me to accomplish things and get things done. And, and so that's how I see it come through as a strength. But about five years ago, uh, I was a part of a leadership cohort, and one of the things they challenged us to do is to reach out to the 10 people that we were closest to and ask them to identify and name our strengths, weaknesses, and blind spots. And so I did. I sent it to, to my folks. I sent it to some close friends and, and coworkers. I sent it to my boss here at Cornerstone. Steve had some great things to say about me. Um, I, I sent it to my beautiful wife. She also had some great things to say about me. And, and, uh, and I got the results back. And these are people I thought were honest with me before I asked them to be honest with me. And I realized that when I asked people to not hold back, they didn't hold back at all. <laughs> and so I got the results back, and, and to a person, it was so, it was so telling of, of who I am. They said, one of your biggest weaknesses and one of your biggest blind spots is that your level of competition, it causes you to want to gain mastery and power over others to a point that it's ruining relationships. It's damaging you, it's hurting you, and it's hurting the people around you. And I, I won't forget what my dad said about this. He's always been extremely honest with me, so I knew I could count on that. But he said, he said Steve, the worst part about this, the, the most challenging part about this for you is that when you allow your competition to move, you, move toward a weakness, you don't look like a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a dagger. You see, this is not who disciples of Jesus are. Verse 43, here's, here's what Jesus says after he describes the way the world works and, and how the world exhibits power and authority. Here's what he says to his disciples. He says, not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now it's important for us to grab onto something here with these first four words, not so with you. The NIV actually omits a verb from this part of our reading. It's the Greek word estin. And estin is, a, um, it's not a future tense verb, it's a present tense verb. And that's important because that means that we read these words like this. It is not this way among you as opposed to it shall not be this way among you. And here's why this matters. Because it is not written in future tense, we understand that this is not a warning to act a certain way as much as it is a description of the way things are in the kingdom of God. Therefore, to fail in being a servant is not just falling short of an ideal condition. To fail 
in being a servant is to stand completely outside of the existing condition of the kingdom of God. It's not just doing good deeds here and there. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. It's not just taking out the trash instead of walking by it and pretending like you don't see that it's full like I happen to do often. Um, my wife and I will let the garbage stack up to ridiculous heights just to see who will break first. It's, it's, more, it's more than the little things. It's, I, I see a lot of wives like elbowing their husbands right now. Sorry guys, you didn't defend me a moment ago. If, I'm go, if I go down, you're going with me. Um, <laughs> here's the deal, the kingdom of God is, is so much bigger than the little things. I mean, do the little things because that's important. But this is so much bigger than that. As a part of the kingdom of God, this is, is what we were made for, putting others first, serving. This defines who we are. And this past February, I was, on an, I was on an airplane during one of my favorite televised events of the year, uh, the Super Bowl, which I know that's terrible planning on my, on my part. Like, who, who uh, schedules a plane trip during the Super Bowl? That's absurd. But, but I actually got to watch part of the game on my iPad on the airplane, and it was, a little, it was a little spotty at points, which frustrated me, and I realized how absurd that is to be frustrated at airplane Wi-Fi. I mean, you're 35,000 feet in the air doing something that only birds are supposed to be able to do, and it's like, my TV won't work. Um, so, so, so that was crazy. But I got to watch the game, and I, got to, uh, and I got to watch the commercials, the other great part about the Super Bowl, right? And there was this one commercial that reminded me about all this stuff that we're, that we're talking about today, and it was, it was the Dodge Ram built to serve commercial. Did any of you see this commercial? Well, he, here's what Dodge did. Dodge took this footage of people like serving other people or helping other people out or just doing their job, and then they like intermittently popped in footage of a Dodge Ram driving through mud be, because it relates, and, and, uh, and, and then at Underneath all of this, what they did was they played an excerpt from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermon that he gave 50 years to the day earlier. Here's what Dr. King preached and what they used in the commercial. He said, if you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. By giving that definition of greatness, it means that everybody can be great. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know the theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Dr. King was teaching on this very passage that we're studying today, Jesus' definition of greatness. It's a beautiful sermon. And with the power and conviction of Dr. King's voice, it compels an individual to, to question and discover how greatness might manifest itself in one's life. Or if you're Dodge, it causes a person to hopefully buy a vehicle. <laughs> Which is which is pretty ironic because actually in that same sermon that Dr. King preached, right before he taught that part, he actually spoke out against car advertisements because of how they cause you to want to elevate yourself above your neighbor and cause envy and jealousy in your neighbor. So I think they might have missed it a little bit on that commercial. 
But at the end of the commercial, spread across the screen alongside the truck manufacturer's logo were these three words, built to serve, built to serve. Now this word serve is, is a word we understand. It causes certain reactions when we think about it and, and we think about its meaning and connotation in our lives. And it's also a word we talk a lot about in the church world. And I think that this commercial struck me. It caused me to take a step back and it caused me to think about what being a part of the kingdom of God is all about. This is what I was thinking about as I'm watching the Super Bowl because of this commercial. Built to serve. You see, there is this weird dichotomy at play in this commercial. On one hand, the thing that Dr. King preached about that they used, selflessness, um, um, humility, and, and elevating others, and then on the other hand was, was pride and position and status. And, and I wondered, like, before I even knew that I was preaching this, this sermon on, through this passage, I, it made me think about what Jesus said here, and it made me question as human beings that are a part of the kingdom of God, what are we built for? What are we built for? Why, why are we here? Is it, is it to be the best and beat the rest, or is it the complete opposite of that? You see, we learn from Jesus that in the kingdom of God, power and service cannot be separated. They go hand in hand. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. You want to be great? According to Jesus, be a servant. The Greek word diakonos, which literally means to wait on tables. You want to be first? According to Jesus, be slave of all the Greek word doulos, and a doulos was inferior even to a diakonos. The slave was inferior to the servant. The doulos in ancient society was the bottom of the barrel, the last, the very least of all. A doulos to all means all are my master. I give up my rights, I surrender. This is, this is greatness, according to Jesus. And it's interesting, when we talk about surrendering and giving up our rights and saying that all are my master, this is exactly what Jesus did on our behalf. And it's what he alluded to in the very next verse, verse 45, the last verse of our study for today. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love how the NIV translators wrote this because of this word right here. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. Even Jesus, even God, even the omnipotent, powerful, prevailing, unstoppable God came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that ransom word right there, that ransom word is so huge. In the language of the day, ransom referred to, to bail paid for prisoners of war and slaves or released from jail. It means to be atoned for or, or covered over. So when we read this and we realize what Jesus did, that he came to serve and give, we know that we have been served with the blood of Christ. We have been 
delivered by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have been given the grace of God. Our, our shortcomings have been atoned for. Our wrongdoings have been covered. Jesus paid the price. Even the Son of Man came to serve and to give. And those two verbs are key when we look at the life that Jesus lived and the life that Jesus commissioned us in. Serve and give. The most exalted position in the kingdom of God is the servant because the primary function of the servant is to give, which is the very essence of God. It flows out of what he's defined by, his love for us. It's what he was made for what Jesus came to earth for, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I don't know about pickup trucks, but I do know this about God. He is built to serve. And because of the sacrifice he paid to free us from the shackles of sin, so are we. As a part of the kingdom of God, this is what we are built for. You see, this isn't some principle that Jesus taught, but rather it's a, it's a pattern of his life that is transferable to his disciples that are asking, hey, how can we be with you at the top in the kingdom of God? And it's transferable to you and to me. This is the position that Jesus took. Even Jesus did this. And in turn, we adopt the posture of servants and slaves, not because it's right or ethical or some good thing to do, but because it is the posture of the Son of God. Even Jesus came to serve so that even I would be free. So that even a sinner like me would be free to take the same position, the same posture as Jesus to serve and to give. I remember witnessing this firsthand um, from someone who I now know very well. Uh, we were in college down in, in San Diego and a group of us decided to go to dinner and uh, we had spent a lot of time in downtown San Diego so we went to, to dinner in downtown San Diego and we decided to go and hang out after dinner with some of the homeless men and women that we had gotten to know um, because we'd go down once or twice a week and bring them food or clothes or whatever. And, and so on our, way, on our way out from dinner, we, we brought leftovers and we, we gave them to, uh, to our, our, our new friends and we said hello and just kind of hung out for a little bit. And, and I remember at one point we were, it was kind of weird, we were, we were like standing and they were all sitting on the curb, the, the group of people that we were talking to, and the woman at my left was talking to my friend Anna, who's now my, my sister-in-law. She married my wife's brother. And, and at one point I said, hey guys, what, what do you need right now? What, what do you need? And the woman looked up at Anna and said, we really need socks. I mean, it was winter, so it was freezing by San Diego standards, so it was like 60 degrees outside. <laughs> and, but they were, they were, so, they were, they were really cold and and. And uh, you could tell, that even just looking at their feet, their shoes weren't keeping the warmth in. And, and I remember as soon as she, as she said, we really need socks, Anna, without hesitating, without even blinking and thinking, she took off her shoes and took off her socks and handed them over to the woman. And I saw this and I took, I took the cue from her actions and I looked to the guy I was talking to and I said, hey, do you want my socks? And he looked at me and looked at my feet and said, no, I'm good. <laughs> So, 
I think he thought I had stinky feet or something. I don't know. So, so, so we got ready to leave, and we said we'd bring socks back tomorrow and make sure we, we brought some blankets for him because um, they mentioned that as well. But on the way home, I remember talking to Anna, and I said, hey, what, what made you do that? Like, what made you react that way? Because my initial reaction when I heard we really need socks was, okay, what's my schedule like tomorrow? What do I have going on? Do I have time to, like, go grab socks and bring them back here? It's a little out of my way, so let's see if I can do that. But Anna didn't think. Like, she just reacted. She saw a need, and she reacted to need. And I remember asking, hey, why did you do that? What made you do that? And she said, I don't know. She needed socks, and I had socks. You see, one of the things I realized about my now sister-in-law is that she is a person who was and is built to serve. Jesus and his kingdom and what his kingdom is all about was flowing through her to a point that, that she realized in that moment without even thinking that the most loving thing she could do for that woman was hand over her socks. And I get it. It's, it's one pair of socks. It probably wasn't going to change this woman's life, but, but she showed her the love of Christ. She showed her that, that this was a reaction to need. You know, the more I think about my heart and motivations when I was in college and I think about, we had like this eagerness to serve and it was, it was something that was so life-giving for us. And now that, now that like I'm, I'm married with, with a kid and, and work full-time, um, I think I've let a lot of life cloud that, um, that commission or that call or just who God's created me to be. And so I wonder when I think about those times, did I lose that? Did I lose that part of my life? I mean, the more we're postured like the one who has ransomed us from sin and death, the more we lean into our position within the kingdom of God and live out the servanthood and, genera and generosity that describes the kingdom we are a part of. Here's what we do. We react to need. That's what Anna did that day. But do I? Is my life postured like Christ? Am I a servant? Is this what defines me? Am I built for this? You know, one of the things that marks Cornerstone, that makes Cornerstone what it is, is that this is a church that cares deeply about serving others, to reach out and care for the marginalized and the hurting and the broken and the downcast. But to be honest with you, I don't know if we're all on board with this. And I say that because I know my own shortcomings in this area. I want to be better at this. I want us all to be better at this. I want us all to react as a part of the kingdom of God when we see need. And I think right now, this time of year, more so than any other time of year, is the best opportunity for us to posture ourselves more like Jesus, to lean in a little bit more to what we were made for. And here's why I say that. In four weeks, we have the opportunity to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We get to joyously proclaim that Jesus ransomed us from sin and death, that he freed us from those shackles, he freed us from those chains, and because of that freedom that we have, it causes something in us, and it causes us to react and live in a different way. So I think right now, starting this month, I think we have a great opportunity to show our communities who we are and who Jesus is in us. 
I mean, every Easter, I get up here on this, on this platform, and I know all of our other campus pastors do this, and we hand you guys invite cards. And we say, hey, go around to your neighbors and invite them to church. This Easter, instead of just giving you invite cards to, so that we can tell people how awesome Jesus is, as a church, we wanna commission and challenge and encourage each of us to not just tell people how awesome Jesus is, but to show people how awesome Jesus is. To say this is who we are because we are a part of the kingdom of God. So throughout the month of March, this is what we're going, we're going to do. We're going to serve. And I hope and pray that it carries us over through April and throughout the rest of the year that when people think about Cornerstone Fellowship and the Jesus that we represent, they go, that's a group of people that knows how to serve and give. We're gonna serve our homeless communities. We're going to stand with the widows and orphans. We're going to care for our seniors. We're going to be great, like Dr. King said, with, with a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. I want us to move toward greatness, like Jesus defines greatness. On our other campuses, I'm going to hand it over to our, our campus pastors to, to contextualize this for your area, and I'm gonna to talk to the Livermore campus for a little bit just about what this is gonna look like because we're a church that's gonna serve. That's who we're gonna be. Um, I don't get a ton of time to just talk to you guys as the, as the Livermore campus pastor uh, when, I, when I get to preach, and so I'm gonna take just a few minutes of your time today to talk about what this month and moving forward is gonna look like for us as a campus, and I hope, I hope I've done a good enough job conveying the heart of God that we're all on, on board with this. Um, that's what I've been praying for this week. You know, about eight years ago, my wife and I moved to Livermore, um, to the Tri-Valley from, from San Diego, and we love this community. We actually moved to Pleasanton first, but um, Pleasanton shut down at 8 o'clock p.m., so we, we couldn't get dinner too late, so we moved to Livermore. Um, but uh, Sorry to all my Pleasanton friends. Um, but we, we, we do, we love this community so much. Um, and the more we, we, we spend time here, the more we live here, the more we realize the need that is present in our community. My wife works over at Las Positas Junior College and she runs the CalWORKS program there. And what the CalWORKS program does is it helps foster youth and, and the homeless population that attends Las Positas and anyone getting government assistance. And over the last week, she's come home and talked to me about a few different situations, one that just really struck me um, in regard to homelessness. There's a, a woman who, who has a five-year-old daughter, same age as my son, and, and they lost the rental house that they were living in, and the, they couldn't find anywhere else to stay, and my wife came home every night and said, is there anything that we can do to help this woman out? And for a couple days, the best thing that we could do was find a secure parking lot for her to park in with her daughter. And you guys know how cold it's been. And this woman and her five-year-old daughter were sleeping in her car because we didn't have access to some place for them to stay. Um, we couldn't bring her into our house because of boundary issues. There's so many like weird politics things with the school and how they interact with the church and stuff like that. So we had to figure out a way to to help, but as of last night, we actually got this girl into this girl and her daughter into a hotel through Tuesday night, and uh, they've got a place to stay because there were people here at Cornerstone that reacted to need. 
And one of, the, one of the reasons I bring this up is because I want us to be aware as a community and as a church that there is need right here in our own backyard. Um, our high school students every year do this, this sleep out where you'll see them sleeping on cardboard boxes out in, out in front of the church just to raise awareness for the homeless youth that there are in, in the East Bay. I've heard over 10,000 homeless youth in the East Bay. That's ages zero to 22. Like there's need right here. This past week, I was at a, at a meeting with 30 social workers and pastors and, and nonprofits that, that are trying to figure out how do, we, how do we help foster youth more effectively in the East Bay because there's significant need to come alongside foster youth in the East Bay. I've got a meeting on a week from Tuesday with the city of Livermore and other Livermore pastors from other churches to figure out how we might address the, the issue of homelessness and hunger in our, in our community because there is significant need right here. And as a church, as we, as we look at what, we, what we've been commissioned in and how we've been called and, and what it means for us to serve and not be served, there is need for us to react to. So I was gonna try to end a little early, but I talked too long today. Um, so there's a few things that, that we wanna do and we wanna call you to as a church. Um, when, you, when you walked in, you sat down today, you saw a few things on your seat. This is a, this is a, a, what is this called, a brochure, pamphlet, flyer? One of those things. Um, that has a few things that you can, you can do as a first step if you like, how do, I, how do I begin to scratch the surface of what it looks like for me to serve in my, in my area? Um, how, how do I do that? How do I, how do I start reacting to need? What's, what's one of the, the best things I can do? Here's a, here's a few options, and there's things to sign up for out in the, out in the courtyard. Um, there's some donation gift bag things that we're doing for seniors and homeless that, that you got like a, an item that you can purchase and bring in by March 18th. Um, that was on your seat as well, if that's something you wanna do. Um, but one of the best things that we have is this little card right here where you can fill out your name and your info because, because here's something that I've realized and I was thinking about this morning is I knew about that woman who was sleeping in her car and we were trying to figure out how to do that. That was one thing. But my wife says, Steve, that's just one of hundreds of stories that I know about in the Tri-Valley of people that are homeless that need a place to stay. Those are needs that I was not aware of and I think sometimes we only react to the need that we're aware of. One of the best things that we can do is become aware of the need that's around us. Through our community groups and through our families, there are things happening in our own backyard where we might not, not have the eyes to see right away, but when God brings that, when the Holy Spirit prompts something and says, hey, that's a need, our job and one of the things that we can do best as a church is just react to need, to not think and just move. So, so for some of us, some of the things that we might wanna do is, is say like, here's, here's some things that I'm interested in or here's some things that I might be able to help out with if this need ever arises. I had like 20 people come up to me last night and say, hey, I have an extra room. If you ever need someone that needs a place to stay, let me know. I didn't know about that a week ago. So if you guys, if, if you know of something or, or you're, you have something that's available, um, let us know or, or as a community group or, or as a family, let's start reacting to need that's out there. You know, one of my favorite stories about Cornerstone is this community group that saw a need and reacted, and it actually started a nonprofit called Missing Man Ministry. Um, I have those guys come up with me once a, once a year to talk about their banquet and everything else, and what they do is they serve widows in our community because they saw a need at one point and they reacted. And I hope that, and pray that we as a church can be a community that represents this um, to everyone else. And if you feel like your family or your community group might be, might be like, hey, we need to take like a big step, 
Um, we have a couple volunteers that are leading a trip to Mexico this summer. There's 100 spots. It's going to be the biggest trip we've ever taken. Um, and one of the coolest things about those trips is that when people come back, it changes their lives and it changes the way they interact with their community. So there's tons of info in, out in the courtyard. There's tons of things for us to connect with and be involved with, but it's not just that. Um, this month, let's be a church that represents who Jesus is, the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Um, that's the church that I know I'm a part of, and that's the church that I want us to continue to be. So um, will you pray with me? God, I'm so, I'm so grateful for, for who you are and um, just what you've given us the opportunity for. God, you've given us the chance to be a benefit to the Tri-Valley as a Livermore campus. I mean, how cool is that? We get to benefit people because we benefit from you. I mean, that's what it means to serve, right? Like, we, we wanna benefit people, God. So help us to be that. Help us to be, become aware of need, God, and react to need, however that might look in our lives. God, that, um, that this is a church, that this is a community of people that continues to be selfless and generous and caring. God, that we don't have to hear stories about moms and their daughters sleeping in cars anymore because Cornerstone or some nonprofit that, that's around or some family just has something that's available to people. God, um, there's so many different circumstances like that. So Father, I ask and pray that we as a church continue to move forward, that you commission us and call us to exemplify you and what the kingdom of God is all about. We adore you and love you, Father, and we wanna be the church like you want us to be the church. We wanna be exactly what you're, call, you're calling us to be. We wanna be great for the Tri-Valley that needs Cornerstone to be great in the way that you define it. We love you and adore you and pray all this in the matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.